This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. When we started this podcast, it was during the first lockdowns at the height of the pandemic. But it has always been an aspiration that we have live events and bring people together to talk about the future of our economy through the prism of jobs. And so it's taken us a little while there with various lockdowns that have been implemented. But I said to our producer, Leo, that I think August would be a good time to try it. As you've heard entrepreneurs on this show, experiment, start small, work out how things are looking. So I said, I think it'll be a lovely, quiet sort of finish to season five to test our first live event. In the end, it ended up being the same week that we went and interviewed Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss for the next prime ministerial hustings. So it probably ended up being the podcast's busiest ever week, which is why it's taken us a little while to turn this episode around. But it's worth the wait, I can assure you. Freddie Ford, I think, is one of the most interesting entrepreneurs out there. He's the founder of a company called Patch. We have all changed the way that we work in the last couple of years. And there is this big debate about what is the future of the office? Is the future remote working from home? And actually, the truth is, no one has really cracked this yet. But I think what Freddie is planning with Patch is a really intriguing way forward. Rather than being in the office or at home, the middle ground of being in a regional co-working office. So therefore, having the best ideas and the creativity that comes from working in a dedicated office space, but whilst also cutting out that huge commuting time that some people have. So it's a very interesting episode about the future of work and about the future of jobs and the way that they look. If you want to know more about the live events that we're planning for the future and just in general more of the projects that I'm working on, sign up to The Notebook, which is our weekly newsletter. The place to go is www.jobsofthefuture.co. Click on The Notebook there, input your address, and we share lots more information around the background of the podcast and other projects and ideas that we're working on. Thanks, as always, to you for listening, and thanks for Freddie Ford agreeing to be our first live guest. So when I first heard about today's guest, it was um, a year or so ago, and I thought, what an interesting concept Patch sounded. But even more so than that, which Freddie will explain the purpose of the company, was the quite incredible cap table or investors that he'd begun to assemble on it, um, including the likes of Matt Clifford from Entrepreneur First, and various heads of talent from some of the biggest and best venture capital firms in the world like Sequoia Capital. So I thought this will be one to keep an eye on. And then a former colleague of mine, Alan McLean-Jones, who uh, was special advisor to Steve Barclay, 
who is now left government and is doing his own startup, said, you've really got to talk to Freddie Ford. He's been listening to the podcast and he's a big fan. And I was like, wow, that is sometimes how circular running a podcast can be. So it's been with great excitement that Freddie has agreed to do the first live show because I think what he is doing is very much the future of work and going to be about the future of jobs. And we're recording this in uh, the Selkirk pub in Tooting, South London, which is where we spend most of our time as a team um, working in the mornings, I will add, before it gets really busy. Um, but I, one of the challenges has been that actually trying to find a workspace where we can kind of um, pull together the team and the kind of various different advisors and projects, people that we have that work with us, that can get together in a, in a place that we sort of do perhaps once every two or, or three weeks and kind of plan our programme for a month. So I think what Freddie is doing at Patch is fascinating. So Freddie, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks, Jimmy. I'm very happy to be here and I'm particularly happy to be here with uh, such an interesting audience that you've put together, including uh, members of my team who've uh, come supporting <laughs> us. Yeah, exactly. you, keep, you keep saying you, but uh, believe me, I'm not building this company on my own. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm between my family as well. There might actually be some people that have uh, paid to be here. But um, <laughs> there's um, what first question is, where did the name Patch come from? Well, it very nearly was called Knit or Fabric. Uh, oh, really? Fortunately, we, we steered clear. There were, there, were, there were two themes that I wanted to, to tie together and discovered that it was a word that, that caught both of them. And the first is the literal interpretation of a, of a patch of land, you know, your local patch, your community uh, area, um, you know, your neighbourhood. And that's really at the heart of the, the business. Uh, we're trying to create a place that is shared, that is cooperative and that, that is owned locally. Um, and, but the second thing I think, which is maybe less intuitive, is this idea of a patchwork of uh, your life and the idea that you don't start uh, work at 9am and life suddenly stops, you get to 5pm and, and you know, the switch goes back in the reverse. But actually that um, life is a bit more complicated than that. Uh, some of us have children, some of us have interests outside of work, can you believe? Um, and so it didn't seem that um, massive a leap to, to think that actually maybe we've approached time um, in the age that we live in, that uh, things are, have a more uh, connected um, seam, let's say. Um, and so um, some initial ideas of a, of a logo, which fortunately were quickly abandoned, were some sort of um, hastily adapted uh, patchwork quilt of activities and services, that, of which work is only, is only one. And so, to put it crudely, what you're trying to do is you're trying to become a sort of regional-based WeWork. And that's probably quite annoying when people describe it, but also quite a useful elevator pitch for people. But can you explain it better? It's a, it's a trigger, word, trigger warning for me. <laughs> the, I, I think there is a very long and well-established history of co-working that well predates any company that, that, that we have heard of. And I think it kind of goes back to a, if you really think about what co-working is, it's, it's about sharing, sharing of space, sharing of resources. And I think there is a long and um, celebrated history of um, effectively kind of communal spaces, communal groups who meet up um, to, to, to share as a priority. I think um, the model has developed and um, you know, 
companies like WeWork have emerged uh, in the last few years, and, and I think probably like lots of good things uh, that, that sort of start at a, at a localized level have kind of thought about how they can take some of the best things and try to, 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 to grow it. Um, the reason that it's such an uncomfortable um, reference for us is that the only thing that they share, I think, with us is um, the idea of sharing of desks. I think um, really what, what they have done for the industry has both had an enormous positive accelerant, um, added a, a, been, a, been, been an enormous accelerant in the sense that a lot of people now know what co-working is, where it's a pretty niche um, pursuit beforehand. But I think the downside is, is kind of obvious for everyone to see. And I think really the thing that, that, that we like to think about at Patch is what sets us apart in our product offering is two things. Um, the first, and I'd say the most important, is our value set. We really care about building a business that is actually going to have a social impact. I don't think anyone uh, at the company, I don't think any of our members in particular, want to be at Patch because we're just a co-working business, if you see what I mean. And there are lots of fantastic co-working businesses that exist and need to exist, but they have a deeper meaning. The best ones are places that people actually want to spend their time. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably a... Because it has become a, a real... I think it's fascinating, the, the office, and I'm a bit of an office geek on this stuff. Like, 20 years ago, the likes of Google and Facebook made it a competitive advantage yeah. to hire the best talent, was creating the best offices in the world. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that kind of goes to the, to the, to the, the second point I was going to make, which was we roll out in uh, places where people live. And so our kind of, our existence is about um, helping people establish their, their, you know, achieve their full potential based on who they are, not limited by where they live. And so it shouldn't be the case, in, as, you, as you say, in likes of Google, Apple, et cetera. Lots and lots of investment in major offices, which are where? In all the cities that, that we know of, and actually a lot of those cities are global, they sort of begin to sort of meld after a while into sort of one big mass, and every Google office probably looks the same, I would have thought, across all the countries in the world. And so I think really, to your point around um, trends of, of employee empowerment, I think what we have seen post-COVID, or I believe the silver lining, or what, a silver lining to, 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 to COVID, will be a, an increased shift in the um, empowerment of employees. And I believe that flexible working or being able to live a balanced life, you know, in, enabling that patchwork of, of, of activities and, uh, and lifestyles, things that are important beyond work, will actually become a standard expectation. Because if the ambition is to compete for talent by providing them with ping pong tables and free whatever, Coke Zero, or I don't, I don't, I've never been to the Google office, so I'm really, I, no idea. Um, but um, I think we can do a bit better than that, and I think we can actually say that there is a world where we can enable communities, we can enable people to spend time with their children, because what else are we on this planet for? And I think that starts with not taking people away from the things that they love. And so Patch is all about being near to the things that, that you love, um, and you know, work is part of, that, part of that fabric. And you have fundraised a sort of seed round that you did, and you're doing more as we kind of speak as well. Talk us through that and the challenges, because obviously you do get kind of boxed in, as I did, with being a regional WeWork. So you took a very kind of deliberate strategy when it came to that kind of initial fundraising. Talk us through it. So I think there's a lot of hype, and depending on the listenership of your, of your audience, there may be founders out there, there may be people who've never founded a business or, or may, may have varying, varying opinions on startups and, and what they are, but... I think there's a lot of hype when one looks outside at startups, particularly technology startups, and they see lots and lots of money pumping in. They sort of think, well, what's this all about? There's no business model. I think we've seen something of a correction in the last few months. So I think 
Um, my feelings on finance is, uh, investment is, if, is frankly you are what you eat. And I think we've seen, you know, in some of the references you've already given, if you consume the wrong kind of capital, it will, you've got to digest it. <laughs> and it will end up, um, it will end up coming back, um, um, back at you if you're not careful. And I think um, uh, what we really, really cared about, and again, I go back to this value set, and it sounds perhaps a little bit kind of high-minded, but I do really, really, really believe it matters, is to make sure that you make decisions for the long term. So everyone that we sought out had to be really, really passionate about achieving the social aims of, of what Patch is there to do. We're a business, we're, we're commercial, we're for profit, and I'm and, and proud of that. I think it's a way that we can have a huge impact, but how we become the provider of uh, choice around the country, how we make sure that we don't end up with a series of gray boxes around the country, um, and how we actually build something that's really meaningful, really, pow really powerful, and fundamentally, I believe, can really unleash huge potential for people in their professional social lives. That's a choice that we make. And I think that choice is guided by the incentives that are placed on me and are placed on the team and are placed on the business. And that those incentives are ultimately driven by the people who uh, have invested in you. And I think it's very important to have the right level of passion, the right level of values, and the right diversity from the very top, from the investors, from the people that you start with. And there are a number of ways that we try to achieve that. And so it's not just about being able to put names on a tin and say, look how great we are, we raised from ABC people. The point is these are people who are credible, who um, bring a really broad range of perspectives to what we're doing, but who fundamentally care about the things that we care about. And there are a lot of people we said no to um, because maybe they just didn't exhibit the same level of, um, of passion. And, and you know, I'm happy to say that, that that has been by far the greatest strength that we've drawn on um, up until this point. And so talk to us about your journey directly of when did you get the sort of the idea to do this and when did you think this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, it, it's, um, there's a, there's a, there's a <laughs> as with everything with me, there's a short answer and a long answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to claim I'm going to give you the short answer. We'll see how that goes. Um, the short answer is, uh, well, here we go. There are two parts of the short answer. Uh, the first part is a, is a, is a, is a, is a sort of deep, well, yeah, the first part of the answer is, is a passion I've had, I guess, since I entered the working world for really two things, and that's people on the one hand and technology on the other. And um, often technology can be seen as a thing that drives people apart. People are staring down at their phones, they're uh, shopping on Amazon, not meeting in, in person at, at, at Debenhams or whatever it may be. Um, they're interacting on Facebook more than they're maybe like looking up at mealtimes to speak to their family or, or whatever it might be. And so I've kind of been in search of a way of trying to bring those two interests of mine together. Um, now, there's a few different, there's a few different um, ways, I guess, that could have exhibited. But I think the other part of, of, of the answer is um, both observed and, to an extent, um, lived experiences of people who haven't had, uh, who have been denied opportunities, let's say, um, um, because in my case, being raised by a single mum, uh, who I'm very glad to say is here today, uh, who um, sacrificed an enormous amount in order to be able to enable me to, to go and you know, live the life that, that, that she wanted me to have the freedom to live. And, and I subsequently saw that, and this is one subcategory of a much larger category of people to, you know, who, who are not always provided the opportunities they deserve, but I sort of thought about it more and more and realised that actually it's the thin end of a, of a very large wedge. Um, and, and, and so, sorry, I entered the working world and discovered there are lots of working parents, frankly, who are disenfranchised and then um, kept chipping away at that and realized actually so many people, you know, there's many different ways to, to approach that. And, and, and there's this huge chunk of people who don't live in London, frankly, to put it very simply. Um, 
And then the more you chip away at that, you realize that it's not just a social issue and a fairness issue, it's also an economic opportunity, not, um, not necessarily for, for a company, but for the individuals that, 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 that I think we're here to serve. Talent is spread everywhere, opportunity is not. Precisely, yeah. Um, and the concept that you have is, is decentralized working, and this has obviously become a big kind of hot topic about how we're going to work in the future. And I don't really think that anyone has kind of particularly cracked it yet or, or come up with a model. What is your thesis for it? So, so I'd say there are two parts of this, or two types of capital, if you will, that, that we're solving for, that we're interested in. As you say, decentralized working, uh, you know, regional co-working spaces, di distributed co-working spaces, you know, whatever phrases you see people out there talking about. I mean, yes, there is a business to be built in... Um, allowing people to access really high-quality, inspiring, confidence-inducing, great places to work that are well-designed and they're not the kind of the afterthought. They're not the cut-offs. They're not the kind of, oh, well, you live three stops further down than I can be bothered to travel to and therefore you'll get what you get kind of thing. And I think we see that and as we explore a lot of towns that we're going to, I'm surprised still at actually, um, you know, the... the I don't know, I just don't really like the attitude that you sort of, you know, the smaller your town gets in a way, the less deserving. You're still people, and I think there is a model to crack that. So I do think that the, the distributed places to work is a clear model, and, and, you know, that's something we're going after. But that's not, that's the sort of economic grounding, or, or the, the first step in the economic grounding of what we're building. But the other type of capital, and, and so within that, you can say broadly, economic capital is the first type of capital that we're interested in. And, you know, every place that we open, every patch that we open, I expect that we will have hundreds of new jobs created, thousands of new businesses, you know, hundreds of thousands of interactions and events and activities each year. But the other type of capital, frankly, that we're much more interested in, or I see as part of this kind of um, synchronized effect that we'll have, is social capital. And it's about the fabric of bringing people together and offering them an opportunity to interact. I mean, we're sitting here in um, the upstairs room of uh, a pub, and a very nice upstairs room it is. Um, you will be perhaps you wouldn't be, but I have been amazed at just how few and often zero spaces there are. Uh, and, you know, whether it's uh, places of worship or uh, town halls or uh, libraries. I mean, there are many men's working clubs. Whatever you, you know, pick, pick your choice over the, over the history of, of social gathering spaces. Um, they just really don't exist anymore or, or, or often aren't kept up or often aren't um, fit for purpose. And so what we offer is places for for people to explore and to access opportunity, no matter what their interest is. And although the priority at the moment is working in the, in the death space knowledge sense, actually the half of the use of our buildings and the buildings are public access, anyone can open, open the door and come in. They're in retail locations on the high street, they're accessible, they're visible, they're tangible, you, you can go there. And, and you know, half of the experience in there has got nothing to do with death space work at all. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I totally agree with the, the thesis. And it's something that we've been trying to do sort of informally here is, you know, Tooting has 70,000 people working in it. A lot of them are going to be working more at home now. Sorry, 70,000 people that live in Tooting. A lot of them are going to be working more at home. And there are people with entrepreneurial ideas on every street that are doing it. And can we connect them? Because, again, you know, everyone spends time on various social media trying to do these things but actually going sometimes a little bit old school and connecting with people on your street and so on I think could be a real sort of growth avenue for people and that's why I think it's so exciting you are um, currently in one site in Chelmsford you can vote on your website for the next one you can't vote for Tooting which is I've deliberately brought you down here as the greatest lobbying effort to try and do so um, 
But where is next on the horizons? I know you're looking in a lot of sort of former Debenham sites, for example. So not announced yet, I'm afraid. Um, But there is um, very soon, uh, and possibly today, literally today, tomorrow, will be... (laughs) Well, it's it's sort of two parts to that question. We we need the capital to grow, and um, we are are, in the process of, of what's called closing a fundraising round. And we'll be able to use that. Um, we hope to open two, three, possibly four over the next uh, 18, 24 months. I mean, these are very elastic timelines, very elastic numbers, because uh, property is slow and timelines can be long. And we really need to make sure that we pick the right locations, uh, both the building and the town. What I can tell you is that um, we'll um, be looking at towns of a sort of similar size and, and mm-hmm. distance from London to, to, to Chelmsford. Um, at the moment, um, partly because I need to physically be able to access them all uh, whilst we whilst we get going. Um, but we've got um, three or four active locations I'm on on search at the moment. But uh, as you say, we we will go wherever people tell us they want us. But why why is it slow to push on that? Because a lot of these sites are empty, derelict, not being used. Government's not making any um, great support outside. Um, government is not making any. <laughs> support in terms of uh, rates revenue etc so why is it taking so long it's i mean it's 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 a great question i think there is a lot of inertia in the property industry i'm not the first person to say that i think there is a lot of understandably a lot of um risk or perceived risk on the behalf of the landlords who see their asset um and they see a new provider of uh, as yet undefined um kind of category in a brand they haven't heard of and they look at a business like ours and they just sort of freeze up and think about credit risk and they have upward only rent reviews and they have all these sort of incentives in place which dissuade them from experimenting. So there's a bit of commercial inertia in, in, on behalf of the um, industry. I do think that is going to have to change because they're in such a predicament now, particularly in retail on the high streets. I do, I mean, there's a deep political thread that probably I'm not well placed to, 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 to explore. Um, but I do think there is a huge opportunity for government, um, and we've seen this written some legislation recently, to, let's say, uh, incentivize those landlords to um, think again about the use of public space. And so there is a white paper, I think, at the moment, it may be making its, its way through Parliament, um, which, uh, if, if, if it succeeds, will, uh, I, as I understand it broadly, will force um, landlords of empty retail units to let the property... Um, basically to the first person they can find or they start to get fined if they don't. I, I forget the detail, but it's, it's nice to see that there is some structural uh, action being taken at a governmental level. You mentioned business rates being another one. I think, you know, for, for, for those who are in government, for those who are close to those decisions, you really have to ask yourself, what are our high streets for? And more, I think, structurally, how do we want to, how, what kind of shape of our economy do we really want to have? I think so much of our um, reliance in the UK is on uh, London or major cities yeah, and yeah. major sectors within major cities and and I'm, you know, I'm reflecting my own experiences here of course you know I, I understand that there is more complexity but there are hundreds of high streets and I know because I've been to them um, where the same story is played out again and again and again which is really um, creative fantastic people who want to get on they want to do well they want to create business they want to find new things they're already running great businesses and yet there is a sort of thought that well actually in uh, in any one location, there just aren't enough people. There isn't this sort of centre of gravity. And my challenge to that would be, look, I understand that there was a time in the Industrial Revolution where it made sense for everyone to come into a factory. I understand that there, is a, 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 there was a need for a permanent agglomeration of people in a, in, a, in a confined space, like a city, in order to kind of 
make sparks fly. But you think about how un incredibly inefficient that is. Um, you know, you may have 8 million or so people in London. What are the chances really of you actually, you know, how many connections are really actually being made um, between all the potential people you could meet? I mean, it's really a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. But until now, that's been our only tool. Cities have been our only tool. I think the internet has completely changed that. Um, but the last, the last um, straw that, 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 has, uh, that has broken the camel's back has, again, been COVID, showing us that we don't actually need to physically come into cities anymore in order to work. And so what if it was true that instead of relying on one or two major cities, major hubs where these sparks may accidentally fly, we actually had 100 or 200 or 1,000 or 2,000 hubs of innovation where the next Google can be built in uh, Swansea because actually with 90% of the um, resources available online, the remaining 10, and including your team, by the way, the remaining 10%, which is a high confidence environment, a place that you can walk in off the street when you're, you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg may currently be 13 walking around the streets of uh, Chester or Wigan or wherever it may be, right? And, and actually you need to give... You give them a place to go and feel confident and access these resources online, um, but also other people in, in, in person. And I think that fundamental assumption that you have to grow in cities is a really is, is, is about to be challenged in a very serious way. And I think if we embrace it, it could have fundamentally like, radical implications for the amount of opportunity that um, people in many, 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 many places can create rather than uh, resting on one or two. Yeah, I mean, I just, to take issue with it slightly, though, right? Like, it's say, for listeners that listening in the future, like, yeah, we're in the midst of another kind of Tory leadership election, of which there may well be many more to come. But is, how do we, how do we kind of move the government's needle on this? Because so much of it in the press is getting covered as a black or white issue in terms of, are you in the office or are you not? And actually, it's so much more layered than that. How do we improve that level of conversation? I mean, I know you've done a working from home manifesto, which I think is a very interesting... Work near thought. home, Jimmy. Work near, Work near home. home. Near home, obviously. Gosh, I'm pulling all the triggers. Um, <laughs> how, do we, um, how do we kind of change that? So there's two things there. I think one is the dichotomy, as you mentioned, between everyone come back into the office. And I think there's a certain um, type of person for whom that's very convenient. Um, let's call them, um, you know, where we were, let's say. Uh, that's, a, I would say, quite a backward-looking view. And then there's, then there's the sort of you know, evangelists of, no, let's all work remote. And I think, fortunately, the heat has been taken out of that conversation as, with many things, uh, people have realised, oh, maybe there's a bit of nuance. Uh, <laughs> maybe there's an answer in the middle. And I think where we see the uh, trend settling not just in the UK but in lots of cities around the world is a sort of two to three days in a central city, two to three days from home or near home, you know, out of the city. And there are many, many choices in between that. And, you know, that just comes back to an earlier point. It reflects the preferences of the different people. You and I, presumably, and indeed everyone here in this audience, probably don't wear the same size of T-shirt. Um, and if we all to have tailored T-shirts, it'll be very different nor do we live the same kind of life, and nor necessarily do we want to work in organisations that have you know, type A or type B. The assumption that everyone is the, at their most productive in every situation by coming in five days a week is frankly absurd, and it's good to see that we're actually sort of sieving out a little bit and, and kind of right-sizing into lots of different versions of that. So that's kind of the first point. I, I feel as though that, that, that debate is slightly moving on, which is good, because I don't think it was particularly productive. But the other thing about this um, is... Um, 
is about what we what we what positive case we would choose to make for the future, and is that case going to be debating uh, kind of hard um, kind of hard solutions based on what we've already seen, or is it or can it be a more ambitious question, which is to say, okay, well let's acknowledge that technology is a thing, let's acknowledge that people's preferences have been uh, um, exhibited during COVID. Let's acknowledge the fact that new opportunities are available, and then let's make a decision about whether we want to embrace that opportunity and give these things a try. Because if we, and I, you know, I think we have a we have a we have a very strong uh, history of innovation in this country, but I think, you know, we're now playing in a global um, talent play, uh, talent market. We're playing in a global um, system. Um, you know, as I said, the internet isn't going anywhere, and so. We can choose whether we want to um, take these um, changes and events, analyze them, and, and ask ourselves, what else might be possible? Is it possible Google and Swindon? I believe it is. And I just think the organization will look completely different to the Google that, 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 that we've seen today. So I think there is a, it's a question of bravery, I think, for, 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 the, for the government. We'll be coming to audience questions soon, so those of you that have planted questions, get ready. Um, and, but I wanted to ask, a uh, few more questions first, just because you are currently hiring at the moment for lots of senior roles. How are you approaching that and how are you doing? <laughs> it's, um, it's a good question, Jimmy. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in the process of discovering that. Um, we, I can only talk about uh, our experience at Patch. I think we care a lot, and I said this when I talked about the investors, but it's very true that we care a lot about the values and the makeup of our team as well. And so our interview process basically solves for mindset and values before it solves for domain expertise. Um, there's a certain level of qualification so that we're not wasting the time of the candidates. I think it's a very competitive world, but I also believe that in order to be successful, you've got to, you've, I mean, it, you know, it comes fundamentally back into the reason of, of why we're building this company in the first place. What is the balance that we're going to help people achieve in their lives? So our three values are near, balanced, and built to last. And um, the relevant values here are um, balanced and built to last. So how can, you, how, can you help, how can you help attract people who are going, like, who can see the balance that we can provide, not only them, but the many, I hope, millions of people that we can serve in the future? And I think that sense of uh, that aspiration, that mission to, to kind of make a difference to, to, to people's lives is, is really important. And the built to last component means that we, you know, we're really looking for people who want to build a career with Patch, and, uh, or at least for whom Patch can be a gateway to the next thing that they want to achieve. And so learning and development is extraordinarily important to us, not only because it will help the people succeed at the company, but also it will help them succeed in their personal goals. And as I tell my team uh, frequently, if they come to me and say they want to leave, um, after a few rounds of convincing them that that's the wrong thing to do, I will be the first person to then help them find whatever's next to them. And so they've come to Patch and they've achieved their mission, then we've, then we've done our job. I think it's... Um, disingenuous to presume that uh, um, that you know everybody wants to give their entire life to one organization um, yeah. but the best that we can do is, is to give people the, the opportunity to have an amazing mission um, but it, you know it's, it's, it's a competitive market it's a difficult place um, I think people are looking at startups at the moment you know in, in the environment condition that, environmental conditions that we're in and, and rightly asking questions but I do think that there are always going to be people who they want to take a spin and see if they can try and have that like 1% chance or I mean I would argue it's 100% chance but you know someone coming into a startup environment and say well 
you know, I'm going to take a hit and I'm going to take a big hit. And, and, and just maybe if this works out, it can really, really change the world. Because actually the downside is so minimal. If you join a, a, a high growth company, particularly if you join Patch, you know, I would hope that you'd have an amazing experience. You'd learn an enormous amount and you'll come out of it at the other end much more capable and much more credibly um, prepared for, for whatever it is you go on to do next. And final question for opening it up to the audience and so on. You talked about resilience and it's one of the most kind of like important factors in terms of anyone being a success, being able to demonstrate uh, resilience and go through those challenges. I am actually struck amazingly by the kind of lionesses and actually the individual challenges that they've almost all been through is quite striking actually. Um, and I just wondered how you inbuilt that resilience in yourself from your upbringing. Uh, you'll have to ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, it's very, I don't know if you get accurate questions about, uh, answers about questions like that when you ask someone to, to reflect on their own I would probably just tell you what I want to hear rather than what's true. But I, I, what I would say is that um, what I would say is that I really care about what I'm building, and no matter how difficult it is, and believe me, well, as you know, and you're running your own organisation here, like it is extraordinarily difficult at times. Um, but there isn't really a, I don't, there isn't, it's not really a set of choices that I'm making every day. Oh, you know, am I thinking about this? I'm in the right job, whatever. I'm just so genuinely, deeply committed to what we're doing. I really believe that what we're doing is going to revolutionize the way we think about opportunity in the UK. And the idea that we might be changing one, 10, 100, 1,000, who knows, perhaps a million lives, by being that opportunity, by being that front door on the high street, online, wherever it may be that they access Patch, by being a distribution network for ideas. And I mean, that is such a massive thing that I really believe that we have a really good shot of actually doing that the really, really difficult days, I'm sustained by my team, I'm sustained by my family, I'm sustained by um, really good people around me. Again, it comes to thinking about who you led into the company at various levels. Um, and then the next day you say, great, okay, well, you know, let's say there was a difficult experience, what's next? You know, the opportunity doesn't change, even if, you know, if you're hitting your head against the wall and, you know, you're sort of um, trying to think of a video game analogy where you sort of, bashing into a ball constantly. It's like a maze, you know? Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you keep going, the way is there. Um, and actually, the thing that probably separates you from others um, is, is you, you keep going. Um, so I don't, in a way, really ask myself that question very often. Yeah. Um, but it's the, it's the lifelong, well, maybe not lifelong, but the, the long-term mission which provides the... It's, it, it, it's taken a very long time. I, I, I think for a long time, I, I really felt, I want to be a founder. That sounds like a great status symbol. And yeah, yeah. I want to be a founder because, you know, I don't know, the alliteration, my name's Freddie. I don't know, whatever the reason is. Um, <laughs> um, now we get to the real reason. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Busted. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, then, but, but, you know, and, and I tried and failed previously. And, um, and then at some point, I just sort of got to the realization where, for whatever reason, for me, it was the right time. These themes crystallized, right time in my personal life. And, and, I, and you know, I, I guess for anyone listening, I just wouldn't force it. I wouldn't try and be something you're not. I wouldn't try and look at me or anyone else that you idolize and say, idolize, but may look up to and want to take, take inspiration from and say, oh, great. Well, you know, they did it at 33, so therefore I've got to be 33. Or, you know, they started their company in uh, the upstairs of the Selkirk pub, therefore I've got to start my company in the upstairs, or he wears a blue jean, so I got to wear, it's, you know, it's ridiculous, right? You got to be yourself. Yeah. And I think, um, <laughs> that sounds sort of um, too strange, but I mean, really, like, 
journey of self-discovery and then at some point you become comfortable with who you are and yeah and you just enjoy doing what you're doing and and you know you take the rough with the smooth and you keep going because there isn't really a an alternative excellent brilliant well freddie thank you so much for coming on jimmy's jobs of the future it's been brilliant to have you thank you very much.